Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks, an audio travel guide aimed to inspire you and your family to visit America's national parks and help you get the most out of your park experience. This is episode number 15.4, the fourth episode in our series on Saguaro National Park near Tucson, Arizona. In this episode, Brian speaks with Jeff Walner, the only full-time year-round park guide at Saguaro National Park. Jeff talks about cowboy culture, the American Wild West, and pop culture, including John Wayne and Snoopy's cousin Spike. Another friendly reminder for visitors to Saguaro National Park, visitors should always take safety precautions seriously, especially when it comes to water. Even when it is not hot, it is a dry environment, which will cause dehydration without you even realizing it. Always make sure to carry enough water with you. We also want to hear about your adventures. Do you have a story to tell about your family's experience at a national park, a favorite recommendation to share, or how this podcast helped enrich your trip? Email us at hello at everybody'snps.com. You can write us a message or even record a short voice memo on your phone and then attach it to the email. You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Again, the email is hello at everybody'snps.com. Before I get to today's topic, I want to take a moment to talk about listener support. If you are already a patron of the podcast, thank you so much, and feel free to skip ahead one minute to today's conversation. If you are not yet a patron and you want to hear my thoughts on this topic, here they are. This podcast is a labor of love. We were looking for a podcast that would help us in planning our family trips to national parks. We could not find one, and so we decided to create the podcast we were looking for. I ask you this question, has this podcast brought you value? If so, would you consider becoming a patron by offering financial support? Patreon is a platform that allows for recurring monthly support for as low as a dollar per month. You may find a link on our website, everybody'snationalparks.com to support the show. Thank you to all of our patrons. Now let's get to the conversation. All right, I'm here with Jeff Walner, a park guide at Suaro National Park. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing well. It's a nice day in the desert. Good for you, because it's not a nice day here in the Northeast. It's uh, cold and clammy and wet. Once again, very jealous. So that's been, a th- that's been the theme of a lot of these calls, is that it's been good weather wherever we're calling, and then uh, it's been winter and a wet spring here. But really looking forward to having this conversation, because the topic today is history writ large. And I think we'll divide into two. We'll talk about the actual real history, and we'll get to that first. But also, I want to talk a little bit about Swaro in popular culture because the Swaro cactus are so iconic. And of course, the American West is so iconic. Uh, and Swaro National Park being the, the location, the centerpiece of uh, the Swaro cactus, of course. I want to talk a little bit about that in pop culture, but we'll, we'll get to that towards the end of our conversation. So kicking off, first off, just a little background on yourself. You know, what do you do at the park and how long have you been at Swaro? Well, I'm a park guide here. So I Take people on tours out in the park, give talks around the visitor center and, you know, kind of the supervisor reperson on many days, especially on weekends at the visitor center here. And I've been doing that for, well, 25 winters and 14 year round, 14 summers as well. Are you a native Arizonian or uh, did you move there 25 years ago or so? Are there native Arizonans? I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, I know. That's why <laughs> well, I asked because it's such a rare thing. 
no, I'm from the Midwest, and I came here. I, I worked in New England for a long time before I came out here. Let's take it from there. I mean, let's... I know what kind of weather you're talking about. Yeah, I know you. Do. So once again, you know exactly, and uh, and I'm jealous. So let's talk about a group of immigrants that came on by where the park is now. We noticed there was a homesteading remnants of some homesteads that were in the park. I'd love to talk a little bit about the cowboy. Um, ranchers and homesteader culture that developed in the park. Can you give a little bit of background about what that looks like? And of course, you know, we're going we're gonna to have a separate conversation on Native Americans uh, with another colleague of yours tomorrow. But uh, I just wanted to pick up where kind of the um, Europeans and Americans came in. So what, what was kind of the first Europeans that made it across and how did they establish this kind of ranching homesteading culture? Well, the people with any kind of European background would have been Mexican-Americans who settled in the area. So, you know, Spanish speakers that came here with the first Spanish explorers coming through, Father Kino in in this valley is best known as one of the people. And Father Kino didn't just find missions. He helped to set up the ranching. He brought the first cattle to Arizona. That was in the 1600s. And those folks, uh, Mexican-Americans, did settle out on the outskirts of the village of Tucson, which was actually founded in 1775. And the trouble was that until the so-called Apache Wars were over, you know, it was difficult living on the outskirts of the city. So the first settlements out here where that is now Saguaro National Park on the East District, which is the only district that has surface water, or did in those days, was by these Mexican-Americans and Spanish-Americans. So that was the first establishment. Again, we're separate conversation on Native Americans, but that was the first establishment of outsiders. And then, and then what happened next? You know, that traditional idea of cowboys, so Americans. So when, when does that start becoming prevalent in what is now the park? Late 1800s, uh, 1880s, or when Geronimo surrendered and people felt safer going out to the outskirts of settlements, then you saw Anglo-Americans from the east coming out here and starting to speculate in land and starting to accumulate very large ranches. In many cases, they dispossessed the Mexican-Americans who didn't have the kind of paperwork and attorneys or could have, could afford the kind of attorneys that could keep them from having their land essentially taken from them. And often they became workers on these large Anglo-owned ranches. Yeah. And those surrounded what is now Swar National Park East. Ranching didn't take place at Saguaro National Park West. That was an area of mining, and we could talk about that a little bit too. But as far as the cowboy experience in reality, that took place in in the Rincon Mountain District of the park. So two things there. One is you remind me of an old Christy Moore song, which is uh, some steal by the point of a gun and some steal by the point of a fountain pen. And so it sounds like that's what happened there. So not as dramatic. Pretty well documented, yeah. So pretty well documented. So so no dramatic shootouts in many regards, but just simply uh, someone having the advantage of access to to the legal system and knowing how to work the system. Uh, And then secondly, which I did not know how late – 
that the American expansion made it to what is now the park. You said the late 1800s. That's, that's not that long ago. And of course, Geronimo, Geronimo was an Apache, right? So right. Geronimo had to be um, subdued, which is another conversation. And we, we also needed the railroad, which arrived in Tucson in 1880. I see. So it was really late breaking when this developed. So in some regards, the West, uh, that great essay that the West was closed was sometime in the 1890s. So really, they were saying the West was closed just when what is now around Tucson was getting rolling, which is very interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's true. And uh, the area around Tucson officially became part of the United States in 1856. And the Soldiers didn't actually arrive and take possession until 1858, so it's fairly late. Fairly late. So then you had, you know, late 19th century, this amalgamation of Americans, of course, Mexican culture, and of course, Native American culture. So how did that all shape what is now known as the Arizona culture or the cowboy culture? How did that all kind of mix together in terms of, you know, let's fast forward to 1910, 1920, you know, if we were taking a tour in a time machine through the Rincon district, what would we see? Well, you would certainly see a lot more Spanish-speaking vaqueros, and it wouldn't be cowboys, it'd be vaqueros, and that would have, you know, which is just Spanish for cowboys, because those are the folks who knew how to handle the cattle, who knew how to do the drives, who knew how to do the -the on-the-ground work that was required on a ranch, and had learned that, you know, with a good century of experience here since Tucson was founded in the 1700s, but had never created the kind of large commercial enterprises that the railroad could support. Mm. I mean, without without the railroad for shipping the cattle out, large cattle ranches didn't make a whole lot of sense here. But when that railroad came in, and the railroad had a big um, corral area and loading area in the town of Vail, which is just due south of Swar National Park East. So it was very easy to um, have the ranches that were here right in the Rincon Valley. And the Vail family had a much, much, had much larger ranches. Ranches down here could sometimes control more than 100,000 acres of land. Wow. You had to have very large groups of cowboys that were able to control, drive, gather up, brand, and all those other things that you do see in the movies. But many, many, many of these people were descendants of the Mexican-Americans who were here before this became part of the United States. So it was still very much a Mexican, or at that point, a Mexican-American culture. On the ground. On the ground. Speaking of the ground, I'm going to ask you a very ignorant question. I know a little bit, just enough to be dangerous about cattle grazing from a, an old job. What were these cattle, what were they grazing? I didn't see a lot of grassland, or did I miss something? I mean, what were they grazing? Actually, yes, there's grassland here. Um, I once had a visitor explain this to me. He said, Arizona was a much better place for cattle ranching than New Mexico, because New Mexico didn't have a lot of high country, meadow type country, ah. and essentially you had to run your cattle on one place over the course of the year. Here in Arizona, with the Sky Islands here in the southern part and with the Mugion Rim up to the north, you could drive cattle up to grasslands and then bring them down into the desert where they were safe and comfortable in the wintertime. I see. Now, that 
probably raises the question of what do you eat down in the desert? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's what I'm getting at, right? So you know, what were right. they eating? <laughs> so the main thing, and this has, there's an interesting story here at Swarm National Park. Uh, one of the main things was they sort of became browsers like deer. They would eat leaves from trees. They would eat prickly pear cactus, especially if it got really bad and there wasn't anything else. They would eat just about everything that was green on the ground. And one of the big things was they ate the beans from mesquite trees and Palo Verde trees, which are the main trees all over the desert here. I'm looking out the window right at a big mesquite tree. And at one point, there was a commercial operation in what is now the National Park. You can actually go out and see the uh, remains of it. It was a lime kiln operation. And they were cutting down all the trees here. And they were taken to court by the ranchers. It's the attorneys again. And the court decided to shut down the lime kiln operations because they were cutting down the trees. And in the court proceedings, the rancher's complaint is based on the loss of the bean trees. No kidding. Yeah. What you think of in terms of the desert is not what Solaro National Park looks like for the most part. It looks more like it on the western part of the park where there was no cattle grazing. The eastern part of the park looks very lush to most people. Okay. So you had some grazing, you had some cattle, you had the vaccaros driving the cattle to and fro. You know, we did come across some remnants of some true homesteaders scratching out a living. You know, Jeff, could you describe who these homesteaders were and what type of living were they scratching out? What type of farming were they doing? And they were living in the desert. So how are they building their homes? How are they building fences for, for whatever livestock they had? How, how did that all come together? I'll talk specifically about some in, in the park because we definitely did have homesteading here. Some of it was almost, uh, I don't want to say hobby home, uh, homesteading, but they were homesteading with the intention of eventually moving out here and having land out on the outskirts of town. But they lived in town. This is the Freeman family. We have a nature trail down to the site of their old homestead. They actually did this in the 1920s. So again, fairly late. I mean, mm -hmm. not, not, we're not thinking about homestead of the 1860s, by which time you could get 640 acres in the desert. And that was a lot of land, you know. And they built an adobe house on a concrete foundation. It had two rooms. They had a couple of outside constructions of tin metal. They had a big barbecue pit outside. They had ramadas were very popular always here and still are. So open air shade shelters made from the saguaro ribs, the wood from inside the saguaro, uh, fences made out of the ocotillo plant, which is a spiny plant that looks like a dead stick. You stick it in the ground and it grows and creates a living fence. Yeah. Those are the kinds of things you found down at the Freeman homestead. Which we toured as well. So that's why I was leading yeah. the jury in those fences are still there because of course they're living and, and you know, they, the Freemans are long gone, but the fences are still there in terms That's of just correct. a nice neat road. They just continue to grow. Yep. The uh, Van Over homestead was a little more, let's see what we can do kind of thing. I mean, if you homesteaded here, you, you, you had some sort of connection in town probably, and you were, you were trying to get your own place and they uh, just, they just ran free cattle I think he had about 75 heads. So they just roamed free in the desert and up into the grasslands as they wanted to, as the seasons changed. 
they put up building just made out of plywood and planks uh, right under a huge saguaro. They had a big tent on their homestead, and we think probably a, a corral or two nearby. Both these homesteads got involved with the creation of the National Park. The Van Overs sold their rights after they got the homestead to the University of Arizona, which uh, one of our founders, Homer Schantz, was the president. And he was trying to preserve some of the land out here before the Park Service could get in. He did get the monument established in 1933. And one of the things he did is he went out to these homesteaders and asked them to sell him the rights. So they would finish homesteading. And that, but that, at that point, they would be given the rest of the money and it would transfer over to the university so it would not become an actual ranch. On the other hand, the Freemans got their deed to the land and held on to it for a little more than 20 years until they could sell it to the Park Service. Because by then, in the 1950s, the Park Service was purchasing land to finish off the monument, especially in the cactus area. So, you know, there's homesteading as we think of it as, as, as being scratching the life off the land. And then there's homesteading because this is where we want our family to go. And if it works out, we may sell it to someone else and down the line. I mean, who can give up on the idea of free land, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. I mean, yeah. it, my impression was the Freemans, it, it wasn't an easy life for myriad reasons, but they were able to make a go of it. They had chosen the land wisely and they had, I think they had some pigs as well. And so they were able to kind of figure things out and uh, they were there for a little while and they were able to grow their family. So it seemed to have worked out. But to your point, there was no land rush at some point. There weren't Freeman's times uh, 15, 16, 100 other families. It was just a few homesteaders that were in the park making a go of it. That's correct. And the larger ranches that were surrounding the park. The area of the cactus forest was never a place that appealed on a, in a large sense to ranchers. They wanted a place where there were some grasses and meadows and where there was some water running through. So on either side of the cactus forest, the famous cactus forest of Sonora National Park, there were more or less permanent streams. They're not at this time, now that we've drawn down the water tables, but those streams is where the large ranches formed, and they formed in part through homesteading, but then through amalgamation, which required money and, and lawyers, as we said earlier. <laughs> as we talked about earlier. Well, let's leave the mundane world of uh, title searches and lawyers, <laughs> and let's go into the exciting world of the Old West as through Hollywood and pop culture. Well, you know, you said you're you're not from Arizona, and, and we're not from Arizona, but how iconic the saguaro cactus is and the myth of the Old West. You know, of course, the saguaro cactus, and in some regards, this national park has been home to movies and pop culture and thoughts. So I'll start with the first question. You know, John Wayne was able to roll up to a saguaro cactus in a movie, stick in a spigot, and turn it on and get a lot of water. So I assume that's not true, Correct. That is not true. Uh, my favorite image from John Wayne was even better, and it, it goes back to uh, the barrel cactus. Right. And there is a little bit of truth in the barrel cactus in that if you cut the top off and beat on it with like a hammer or a, a pestle, like you would be grinding an implement, you can actually 
create a kind of sticky substance that you can make into a beverage. You better have some water to put in it, though, because it's very acidic. Right. But the Native Americans did make a beverage from the barrel cactus, which has no wood in it. Problem with a saguaro is there's wood inside a saguaro. Yeah, there's lots of moisture inside there, but there's also wood in the middle of it. But in the movies, I very clearly remember John Wayne taking a sword and whacking off the top of a very large barrel cactus in one swing which you could wow. not possibly do. He is the dude. Uh, no, matter how, no matter how sharp the uh, sword was. <laughs> right. And then dipping his 10-gallon hat into it and drinking ice water out of it. <laughs> 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 so that, that was, yeah, that was a Hollywood barrel. Y- you and I are not John Wayne. He is the Duke. And I guess uh, there are certain privileges that's, that's, ascribed to the Duke that uh, were not ascribed to mere mortals like you and me. But... It is emblematic of how, again, I keep coming back to how iconic the park is and or the cactuses in the Old West is and how you all represent that. I was just mm-hmm. checking on how many films uh, have been filmed within the park. And I mean, these aren't B movies. Uh, you know, there's a Martin Scorsese film. Alice doesn't live here anymore. There's a Sam Peckinpah film. Charlton Heston had a film. My reference point, being a Northeastern kid, and it'll show my maturity, is peanuts uh the charles Schulz comic strip of course uh snoopy's cousin spike who looks just like snoopy just skinnier with somehow a dog he had a mustache lived in arizona and was always leaning up against a swarrow cactus when he was reading letters from his cousin snoopy uh wherever the peanuts gang lived so how does this all come together you know we talked a little bit about the real history which is uh you know we talked about homesteading came a little bit later of course there's a whole rich native american experience there's a mexican experience but can you talk a little bit about that myth of the old west and what do you what do you see in terms of the people visiting the park and and what have you seen now that you are there and giving tours how is hollywood and how does pop culture fit within the sonoran desert and swaro national park I'll tell you first a little bit about Spike, Snoopy's cousin there. The National Park Service put out a map of the uh, national parks for children, which featured Peanuts characters. And Spike appeared sitting under his uh, iconic saguaro in the middle of Texas. No. This is a national park publication. Saguaros don't grow naturally in Texas. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. That breaks my heart. Come on, Spike. The the saguaro is a symbol throughout the world. I would say in the United States, it's it's a symbol for the Old West, and that Old West could start at Missouri, I suppose. Right. But for the world, the saguaro, in some ways, is is a symbol of the United States. Yeah. Saguaro aficionados that come from, especially from Germany and Japan, those are the big uh, people who love the Southwest, love those movies that you mentioned, and know that they want to see this plant that they saw in those movies. Now, it may very well be that the plant was made of paper mache. Right. Because My Darling Clementine, which took place in Tombstone, had saguaros all over the place. It was filmed in Monument Valley, and saguaros don't grow in Monument Valley or in Tombstone. Right. So that popular culture had created a mythos around the saguaro. And and people want to experience that for themselves. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to run this by you because this is my theory, which feel free to, to knock it down, is uh, because 
the saguaro cactus seems a bit solitary, right? Of course, in the Sonoran Desert, where the park is, there's tons of them. But, it, you know, it seems like a solitary figure, especially when they grow as, you know, 50 feet and 60 feet. It kind of stands for that, you know, rugged individualism, the solitariness of the cowboy astride his horse in the West. You know, John Wayne, you know, fixing all the problems mm-hmm. himself. And so I think that's where it all, again, total myth on several levels, but that's where it all comes together, where it seems so representative of that, of the mythos of the American West. What do you think? Am I on the right track or or am I the equivalent of uh, trying to cut off a barrel cactus with a sword here and and drinking straight from it? No, I think that's pretty good. And it's an interesting contrast to what you will discuss when you discuss Native American look at the place where they think of it more of all the saguaros up on the hillside together are, are the people Definitely, when people come here, they want to get their singular picture taken standing next to a saguaro, holding their arms up like the saguaro. Yeah. There's definitely this sense of exactly what you said, of a, of a solitary figure enduring in a rugged landscape. Right, right. But I think that contrast is great where the Native Americans look at it and they see a people right? Not a yeah. person, a people. And what a contrast, right? And what tells you a little bit about maybe the difference between something like, say, the Apache and, again, that the, the myth that popped up about the American West. That is interesting. And we'll leave it at that. I have no other comment other than that. That's very interesting. You know, any other stories that you have, Jeff, about uh, whether it's Spike or John Wayne or Charlton Heston or, or Tom Mix in the silent film era, anything else about how this all fits into our general pop culture before we wrap up here? Well, I ask people why there's a Saguaro National Park, and I'll get answers like, they're endangered, which is not true. It's a, it's a common plant in the Sonoran Desert. We needed a place to preserve them. And I'll say, well, yes, but why here? And the real reason really is because of pop culture. We wanted a place to celebrate saguaros. Mm. We wanted to celebrate them scientifically through the university and the biologists, but we also wanted to celebrate them as a people. One of the founders of this place was a former postmaster general of the United States uh, and one of the owners of the local paper, someone who was very much into uh, popular culture I mean, and business. Right. And so I believe, after working here for a long, long time, that without the Hollywood angle, without the use in Zane Gray novels, without those popular culture places, there probably would not be a Saguaro National Park. People have this investment in these plants. They see themselves, and whether that's modern capitalist culture or or the more spiritual culture of the Native Americans, it's true on both sides, and there's just something about them. You are right. I have never thought about this. What other national park was based on, and its origin story comes from popular culture or even Hollywood? I can't place one right now. Of course, communication and newspapers, newsprint were you know a big start to some of the first parks, but nothing like this. And that makes it very singular in many regards. But at the same time, even though it's based on popular culture, obviously it goes without saying, Saguaro National Park is not crass. It is not commercial. It is still nature in its natural setting. And I think that just makes it a, that much more of an interesting park. So, and Jeff, one more thing. We usually ask all our guests for one favorite story from their time there. It's just a time where you were there. Maybe it's uh, by yourself or, or with some friends. 
where it really just, you know, hits you right between the eyes of what kind of special place this would be, you know, when you just had a real, a real epiphany. Do you have any stories you can tell with that? Yeah, this might be good for your listeners in the Northeast. The very first week that I was here, I was sent out to walk in the afternoon out in the park. And as I was walking back, there were coyotes howling and uh, ravens flying by. And I realized that that's exactly things that I could have heard back where I had been working in northern New Hampshire. And the ties of the desert, the fact that the desert is not as foreign as many people think it is, sank into me immediately. And that's how I've always approached the desert when I try to introduce people who are here new to the place. I say, hey, these are still plants. There, There's still things that you know that, that are here. The world's connected. Yeah. Yeah. The last thing the Sonoran Desert is the very last thing is barren. Right. And so if anyone has that predilection or predisposition, they're in for a rude uh, awakening because it is very, very much alive and lush in many regards. So uh, that's, a, again, a great, a, a great story to end on and uh, makes me excited to come on back again. Either that or watch some old Western movies. So one or the other <laughs> will we'll do. So once again, Jeff Walner, Park Guide at Sparrow National Park. Thank you very much for your time today. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. You may find links to resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. Send us your stories, tips, or comments to hello at everybodysnps.com. You can write us a message or even record a short voice memo on your phone and then attach it to the email. You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Again, the email is hello at everybodysnps.com. Subscribe for free to Everybody's National Parks on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, become a patron. Just click on support our show on our homepage, everybodysnationalparks.com. We also appreciate if you write a review, give us a five-star rating, and tell your friends. This helps more people find us. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag Everybody's National Parks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.